at the end of the service today we shall be celebrating the Lord's table and we shall no doubt be reminded of the words spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ as he passed the cup to the disciples and those words were this is of course that means this represents this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and Matthew's version adds for the forgiveness of sins but I wonder whether we ever think what the new covenant refers to after all the Lord could most easily have said this is my blood which is shed for you for the remission of sins that surely would have said everything that needed to be said so why did he add those additional words of the new covenant what is the new covenant what does he mean by the new covenant and why did he feel it so important to add them as he instituted the Lord's Supper well that's going to be a question we're going to try to answer today the new covenant what is the new covenant and it may seem rather strange but to get an answer to that question we're going to turn back to the Old Testament to a prophecy to a prophecy made by Jeremiah hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus Christ came a prophecy which we are going to read again now just so that those who are listening to the podcast can take notice of it and realize what it is we're talking about so let me read from Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 31 the Lord is speaking through the prophet of course behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt which my covenant they broke though I was a husband to them declares the Lord for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days declares the Lord I will put my law within them some versions say I will put my law in their mind and I will write it on their heart and I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of these to the greatest declares the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more well then it's quite clear that there is a new covenant now what is a covenant what is meant by a covenant in the Bible and indeed in general language it simply means an arrangement a covenant is an arrangement and it always involves two parties because 
to have an arrangement with somebody else means there must be a somebody else. So an arrangement, a covenant involves two different parties. And the first thing I want to notice in Jeremiah 31, it's good to have your Bible open at that passage, Jeremiah 31, verse 31, is this, that it is God who makes the covenant. He says, I will make a new covenant. It will be different from the covenant I made with the house of Israel. And that indicates that in either case, God makes the covenant. He is the one who, who designs the covenant and um, he is the one who operates that covenant. But there are always two parties. Now, if you read your Bible, Old Testament in particular, you'll find there are very large numbers of covenants referred to in the Old Testament. Covenants between men and men, people and people. But those covenants are not of interest to us because quite clearly a covenant between one person and another or one group of people and another group of people dies with the death of those people. That's why covenants made by God are so important because God does not die. And therefore a covenant made by God has the potential to last forever. And that is why we're interested not in covenants made between people, but covenants made between Almighty God and people like ourselves. Now, what are the characteristics of the new covenant then? Well, we're told here quite clearly in chapter 31 of Jeremiah that the new covenant will involve the implantation of God's laws into the hearts and minds of those who believe in him. Now that is a tremendous statement. For the first time in human history, God is going to, under the new covenant, effectively implant his laws in our hearts so that we are instinctively capable of understanding and obeying them. Now, you may, if you know your Bibles, and many of you do, you must ask two questions. You may have two objections, if you like, to what I have just said. You might question my statement that when the Lord Jesus Christ established, by the shedding of his blood, the new covenant, it was the first time that God's laws were implanted in the hearts of people. first objection you might have arises from a statement in Romans chapter 2 in verse 14 where the Apostle Paul is talking about the Gentiles, people who did not have the law, the law of Moses, that old covenant. They did not have it, they knew nothing about it, they didn't have a Bible, they didn't have scriptures. They are completely ignorant of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And yet, Paul says, when the Gentiles do by nature 
the things that are written in the law, they show the law written on their hearts, or rather the works of the law written on their hearts. Their consciences and thoughts either accusing or excusing them. I quote that rather freely to make it clear. So here we have the Gentiles, and that means really everybody except the Jews, and so everybody's included, has an innate knowledge or understanding of the difference between right and wrong. They have consciences. God has implanted a conscience in every human being. And whether that human being has ever heard the gospel or ever heard of Yahweh, the Old Testament name for Almighty God, the creator of all things, whether they know that, they have a conscience and they instinctively know the difference between right and wrong. And that's been true ever since humanity. But that's why I said effectively, because the problem is that those who have this instinctive knowledge of right and wrong do not have the power to follow what is right and reject what is wrong, because they are sinners and they are in bondage to sin. And therefore, although they have the knowledge, they do not have the power to implement that knowledge. But the fact that <coughs> there is this instinct is, is obvious, I think, as we observe human beings. And uh, I'm going to tell a little story that some of you have heard before, <coughs> but I think it's worth telling just to indicate that even a very young child has a conscience. I was visiting a family who had a daughter, uh, aged two, I think it must have been, and we were talking in quite a large room in their home and the two-year-old was pushing a doll's pushchair up and down the room quite vigorously and she, quite accidentally I'm sure, ran the pushchair into the foot of her father which inflicted a certain amount of pain, quite obviously. Now the older sister, who was always very happy to give orders to the younger child said Alison say sorry to daddy and you could see from the expression on the face of the young child that she had no intention of saying sorry to daddy her lips were sealed and a frown was on her head and she carried on pushing the doll in the pushchair up and down the room the older sister said in a louder voice Alison say sorry to daddy no response third time the older sister said with a tremendous emphasis, Alison, say sorry to Daddy. And then a moment or two later, the frown disappeared from the young child's face and was replaced by a, a lovely smile. And she beamed up at her older sister and said, me can't talk. Now, that child knew she had done something wrong, something for which she ought to apologise, but she had no intention of apologising. That was her sinful nature coming out, and she managed to get around, in her own mind at least, get around the dictates of conscience by that wonderful excuse. Brilliant, complete lie of course, 
But nevertheless, all the people in the room burst out laughing, so I'm afraid it wasn't a very good lesson for the child. But young, very young children, as soon as children are capable of thinking, they exhibit a conscience. But unfortunately, that conscience can be got around, it can be broken, can be submerged. And the person's instinctive knowledge does not bring about a change in behaviour. Now, the other objection you might consider is that if the new covenant was instituted, well, was begun as a consequence of the death of Christ, this is the blood of the new covenant. Well, that blood was not shed <coughs> until Christ died the following day. We might say, well, what about all those heroes of faith in the New Testament that are celebrated in Hebrews chapter 11 from Abel onwards? Noah, Abraham, and Moses, prophets, David, they all were led by the Holy Spirit to write the scriptures that they did or perform the deeds of faith that they performed. What about them? Did they not have God's law written in their hearts? Well, in the last heading of the sermon, I'm going to deal with that. Basically, it's the fact that that God granted in advance the benefits of the new covenant to some who existed before that new covenant was instituted in time. God is not limited by time. And he gave to those people in the Old Testament an advanced experience of the new covenant in order that they might write their prophecies and perform their acts of faith for our instruction. But more of that by the time I finish. So then, the New Covenant consists, first of all, in the writing, the installation of God's laws in the hearts of those who believe him. Now, you notice also that this New Covenant in Jeremiah 31 is not like the covenant I made when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Now that covenant, of course, was the covenant that God made at Sinai with the people of Israel after they had come out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. He took them to Mount Sinai and there, through Moses, he made a covenant with the people. So in what sense was there a need for a new covenant? Well, Jeremiah says that they broke the Old Covenant. We'll use that expression, the Old Covenant, to describe the Sinai Covenant. They broke it. They didn't keep it. Even in the psalm we read at the beginning of the service, Psalm 103, the blessings that that psalm so lavishly promises to us are to those who keep his covenant. And that, of course, would have been a reference to the Old Covenant. And the great problem with the people of Israel is they could not keep that covenant. That covenant was what we call a covenant of works. You see, there are two kinds of covenant. Even today, there are two kinds of covenant. And there were in those days, always have been. And the two kinds of covenant are 
are quite distinct. Before gift aid was introduced for people to give to charity, some of you will remember the donor was asked to sign a covenant to take out a covenant and that covenant was simply a written statement that he or she would give a certain amount of money to the charity regularly every year or every month and that covenant was lodged with the charity and um, <clears throat> it was not compulsory it was something voluntary on the part of the donor and the donor could stop the covenant any time he liked. So there is a covenant which is like a will or testament where the donor decides of his own free will to give to the other party without expecting or demanding anything in return. That is the first kind of covenant, a gift, a testament, a will a covenant such as I described for giving to charities in our own day. There are still two parties, but only one party is active, and that party is the donor. All the recipient can do is to accept the gift. They have no part in saying how much that gift should be, or when it should be given, or anything about the gift. They had no part in that. It was, if you like, a one-way covenant. And that is what the New Covenant is like. It is not based upon anything we do. It is a gift of God's grace that he gives us, not for anything we have done, not for any works that we have done, not for anything we have paid for it, or done for it, or worked for it, but it is a free gift. And that is, of course, what we mean by grace. It is a covenant of grace. Now the other kind of covenant is a covenant of work where there is a reciprocal situation in which both sides have obligations. And that's the kind of thing that we call a contract today. In a contract you have two parties. It is a covenant, an agreement, an arrangement between two parties. But it's breakable because if one party fails to perform their function, the covenant is broken, no longer exists. And all of us have or have had such covenants. You've got a mobile phone, you have a contract with the supplier or electricity supply. You have a contract with the supplier. The supplier promises to provide you with what you want, with the service that you require, and you, on your part, covenant to pay for it. And so we're utterly familiar with this other kind of covenant. And the point is that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Sinai covenant, was a covenant of works. I ought to just make that quite clear. Uh, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy is the last of the five books of Moses. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, God tells them in verse 7, the Lord God is bringing you into a good land. This is the promised land. And they had arrived, or they were about to arrive. No, they hadn't actually entered the promised land, but they were on the borders. And Moses says, the Lord your God is bringing you 
into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out into the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and of fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oak, olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. It goes on in that mood. But then, in verse 11, he says this, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. These are the provisions of the covenant of Sinai. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold are multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So he goes on, if you forget, this is verse 19, if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish like the nations that the Lord made to perish before you. So shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God covenant of works, if they didn't obey the commandments of the Sinai law, if they went and started worshipping other gods instead of the Lord their God, God would take away all that he had given them. It was a covenant of works. They had to obey the commandment. And of course that was what they could not do. That was what they did not do as a matter of history. And God drove them out of the promised land. They were carried away captive by first the Assyrians and then later by the Babylonians. They no longer had or possessed that promised land because they had disobeyed the Lord their God. Now my second heading the new covenant, now the old covenant. And to some extent I've said a great deal about the old covenant already. But what I want to emphasize under this second heading, and do so quite briefly, is this, that it is a serious error to consider that the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant were the people of God. And unfortunately there is a tendency among evangelicals to say that they were the people of God, that their armies were the armies of God, that they were the people of God in the Old Testament times, just as the church are the people of God in the New Testament era. But you see, that's wrong. They were not the people of God. How could they be the people of God if they were worshipping other gods, if they were driven out of the land because of that particularly? Well, what were they then? They were a symbol of the people of God. They symbolized the people of God. In certain respects they symbolized the true people of God without being the true people 
of God. They symbolized the true people of God because they were a chosen people. They symbolized the true people of God because uh, there were so many promises made to them and, and, and fulfilled towards them. But they were not the people of God. And you see, two covenants mean two peoples. There are the people who were in covenant with God on the grounds of their obedience, on the grounds and basis of a covenant of works. If they did what they were told, they would prosper. That's the whole point of Deuteronomy 8. If they refused to do what God commanded, or if they forgot to do what God commanded, then they would suffer. They would be driven from the land. There are many other Old Testament scriptures that, that testify to that fact that it was a covenant of works and that the national Israel were not the people of God but they were symbolical. They illustrated certain aspects of the true people of God. There were a true people of God, those who are called the remnant and we shall come to those in just a moment. So, I think that's all I need to add to my second heading. They were symbolical, the national Israel were symbolical of the people of God, but they were not in themselves the people of God. <coughs> and uh, we perhaps ought to turn to Galatians chapter 5 um, just to make that clear that it is a scriptural statement I am making <coughs> in Galatians 5 Paul is writing to these um, converts from the Gentile world for freedom Christ has set us free stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There's a reference to the old covenant that certain Judaizers were trying to impose upon these Gentile converts. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept <coughs> circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, who joins Judaism, becomes subject to the law, uh, that he is obliged to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Paul is very clear, isn't he? These Galatians and, and other Gentile converts had been worked upon by these people from Jerusalem called Judaizers and insisted on the fact that you couldn't become a Christian unless you first became a Jew because the Messiah was only given to save the Jews. So if you were a Gentile, you had to first become a Jew and then you could be included under the new covenant. And, and that's utterly wrong. And Paul is saying here, if you submit to the covenant of Sinai, males being circumcised, then you've fallen from grace. You don't belong to the people of God. 
And, and so it's, it's so clear that the old covenant had to be not just supplemented by the new covenant, but replaced by the new covenant. And that, of course, is made very clear in many New Testament scriptures. In Hebrews, for example, we're told that the old covenant was vanishing away. It no longer had any force. You say, well, well what about the Ten Commandments? And so on? Nothing wrong with the Ten Commandments. They're built into the new covenant. But all the rituals and works requirements of the old covenant, they've gone. And then my third heading is this, the Abrahamic covenant. Because although it may seem strange, the ultimate covenant between God and man is the covenant God made with Abraham. Because it was a covenant of promise, and we don't have time to work through the passages in Romans and Galatians, which make this so clear. I'm just going to have to summarize it very quickly. In Genesis chapter 12, the opening few verses, God made a promise. He makes a covenant with Abraham. And it's a covenant in which God is giving, 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 giving. And Abraham has nothing to do but to accept the gift. And that promise consisted of three things, particularly. First, God promised Abraham that he would make of him a great nation. Secondly, he promised that he would give to that nation a land for them to inhabit. And that happened. Of course, both of those things happened in history. The Jewish nation did become a great nation and they did inhabit the promised land. Uh, but the third part of the covenant of promise was in you or in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And that, of course, was a reference to Christ. And then in Galatians also, we have, and I think I must just read this briefly. We have also an explanation in the form of an allegory that the Apostle Paul gives uh, to indicate that the Old Covenant had to be replaced, done away with. So let me read, read this. Chapter 4 of Galatians. And we're starting reading at verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, those who've been persuaded by the Judaizers to, to become Jews in order that they might be real Christians, tell me that you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Reference there to the Old Testament. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born secondly. The son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar, that is the slave girl. 
Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Slavery to the law, a law they could not keep. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. In verse 28 he continues, Now you, brothers like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Now, you couldn't be clearer, could you? Cast out. Cast out the slave woman and the son of the slave woman. Because if you don't, if you go with them, then you're fallen from grace. So, what was the point of the old covenant? It was, after all, a, a covenant that God made with the covenant was given for reasons of sin. It was given in order to prove and establish the fact that man by nature cannot keep God's law. It was given by virtue of sin, but he says the the law, that is the Sinai covenant, was given 430 years after the promise to Abraham. It cannot annul the promise to Abraham. So the promise to Abraham sweeps up both the old covenant in its dismissal and the new covenant in its fulfillment. But there is one final thing I've got to say. It goes beyond the new covenant. Uh, this is my last quotation and where I finish. In the book of Hebrews, we're told in chapter 11 that Abraham looked forward. Here we have in chapter 11 and verse 10. Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham looked beyond the new covenant. The new covenant takes us to the point where we are reconciled to God through the death of Christ, where our sins are forgiven and remembered no more. It takes us to that point. But why are our sins to be forgiven? Why are we to be reconciled to God? It is in order that we might become citizens of the eternal city. And here we have in chapter 12 of Hebrews, my final quote. You have not come to what might be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, describing the giving of the law on, on Sinai. 
He says, no, you've not come to that. You've not come to that. You have come, verse 22, but you have come, speaking to Christians, speaking to the true people of God, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels in festive gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. You see what Hebrews is telling us? That as a consequence of bypassing the old covenant as a temporary covenant put in place just to prove the sinfulness of man, in embracing and incorporating the new covenant in the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, the covenant of promise with Abraham looks beyond that to our membership of the eternal city of God. You have come to the city of the living God. That's what Abraham was looking for. Looking beyond the old covenant, bypassing the old covenant, embracing the new covenant, and then going on to see the fulfillment of the new covenant in the city of the eternal God. That's an all-embracing covenant, an umbrella covenant, if you like. And that is what we look forward to also.